Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Apologies in advance, I've got some weird kind of allergy throat thing happening today, but (laughs) I'm going to soldier on. Oh, you're so brave. Well, we have a lot of things to be excited about. I am giddy with delight. We just booked our first live show for October. First show we've done for, I don't know, a year and a half. Mm, Super excited. Um, We'll have all the details for you very soon, but we did want to let you know we have officially booked a live show. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's in New York City. I'll say that. First one we booked is in New York City. So if you're in the New York City area, we'll be getting details to you pretty soon. Probably shouldn't have even told you yet because we haven't signed the contract. But, uh, it, you know, I think that we've we've come to an agreement that's going to work. That's right. Yeah. There has been oral. Uh, well, I mean, there has there has been confirmation yes. and, and head nodding mm-hmm. on both sides. Yeah, we'll let you aisle. know. Don't it, forget also our Looped show is coming up on the 27th. That's, uh, of course, anybody can watch it because it's on the interwebbles. And tickets for that will go on sale uh, sometime this week. Very excited about that as well. I am always jazzed about new ink. So Yeah, it's the You Tattoo Us show. Is you, that just what we're calling it now? I, I because that's what you're, you've been calling well, it. I'm okay with it. I don't know what else to call it. It, it sounds good. You're going to choose our tattoo and we're going to get it while we tell the story live on the internet so it'll be fun slash painful but mostly fun all right you better get into your story before my voice gives out okay so paris oh paris right we've talked about you know maybe making paris a destination for maybe an upcoming anniversary or something make a big special trip out of it i'm super excited it's France's capital, it's a major European city and a global center for art and fashion and culture. Of course, you know that if you want to see incredible uh, historic pieces of art, you want to go to Paris. Of course, there's the Louvre. 
the National Museum of Modern Art, which houses pieces by Picasso and Matisse and Warhol and Pollock. There's the Musée d'Orsay, which has Impressionist and Expressionist masterpieces by Van Gogh and Degas. There's the Petit Palace, 1,300 pieces from artists like Cézanne and Monet. It's a magical place. You had me at Louvre. 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 That place with a big uh, glass pyramid. Right. I always think about uh, in the Da Vinci Code where the police officer says that it's a scar on the face of Paris. (laughs) But I think it's pretty. So, you know, whatever floats your boat, I guess. Scattered about the city of Paris are treasures of the world that inspire us and teach us about history and culture and ourselves, including the Paris Sewer Museum. What? Okay. Now this, no, is not some sort of sterile, white-walled building with uh, photos of your day's shitter holes. No, no. (laughs) This museum is in the sewer. It's actually in the sewer. It is a sewer museum about sewers and in the sewer. Do they have a Ninja Turtle display? Because that'd be awesome. Yeah, and your tour guide is Splinter. (laughs) Of course it is. So more specifically, the museum is in the sewers beneath the Quai d'Orsay on the left bank. And around the year 1200, the first drains were built in the streets of Paris. Um, The streets had been paved. And in 1370, the first covered sewer was built, which ran into a stream in the city. Mm -hmm. Before then, the population would take the water directly from the River Seine, and once they had used it, in whatever way they were using it, uh, they would throw it onto the unpaved streets Uh of Paris or whatever, and uh, much of it would run back into the Seine. We've discussed how uh, sewage treatment back in the day was not great. That's when they had sewage treatment. Oftentimes, sewage treatment in those days was defined as just dumping it in the street. Yeah, that's what I meant. That was their sewage treatment. That's it. Was just, my butt's done with this. Now it's yours to behold. During the First French Empire, a covered sewage system was developed, covering an area of 18 miles. In 1878, a double water distribution network and a sewage system over 372 miles long was introduced. Because it had been discovered that the filthy water that was released into the city center was causing illness and plague, and therefore, uh, gutters were placed in the streets as well as water pumps and other essential requirements, which transformed the sewage system into a modern structure. So organized tours of the sewers were first offered in 1889. No way. Yeah. Tours were available twice monthly, and visitors were transported through the sewers on boats and wagons. (laughs) These days, after going down the stairs from the above-ground ticket office, you enter a long gallery beneath the Quay Dorsey that runs parallel to the Seine. The museum details the history of the sewers and the role of sewer workers and methods of water treatment and such. Now, this museum does not smell great. Well, I wouldn't imagine it it did. No. um, It's under the city. It's humid. Everything is a little damp all the time. It's been soaked in feces for 
over a millennia. Right. So it's not it's not doing great as far as effluvia. You'll see pipes, of course. There's a flushing machine that's used to clean the sewers, which is like a really big toilet tank and a flush valve, which is funny to think of mm. like on a large scale. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also a five-ton flushing boat, which ran through the main sewer line in the days of yore. You'll also pass a large basin that traps solid material from the wastewater. It says on the museum website that the sewers recover more than 15,000 cubic meters of what's called grit per year. Okay. Yeah. So this sewer system is still in use? Yes, parts of it. Oh, my God. Right? And people pay to go see it. Yeah. Sewer maintenance equipment from past and present, including these huge wooden balls that are used to clean the tunnels. Mm -hmm. So they're just ever so slightly smaller than the width of the tunnel. And they just jam them through, kind of like cleaning the, the sides of your intestine. It's like sewer fiber. Ooh, wow. Yeah, shaving the plaque off the inside of your heart artery. That has got to be one sought-after profession. (laughs) There are mannequins of sewer workers in their underground gear, so you Mm. can see like what the history of sewer worker uniforms look like, which is kind of cool. And there's also a self-directed video that you can watch that talks about how um, there are watchmen who used to help you if you dropped something in the sewer. So like fancy... (laughs) Fancy Parisian ladies could call and be like, "Uh, Monsieur, I dropped my paperwork in the sewer. And then they would come along. (laughs) My apologies to those of you who are French. Listen, don't apologize for me. That was great. That was a spot on French accent. No, it was very Pepe Le Pew. (laughs) Disagree. Anyway. So they have sewer boats, you yes. said. They should turn it into a flume ride. <laughs> <laughs> Bring your poncho. The museum is currently closed for renovations. They're making it more accessible for people. How do you renovate a sewer museum? Well, it's mostly like putting ramps in and oh, stuff okay. so that, that yeah. everyone can, can enjoy this masterpiece. Um, According to EuropeForVisitors.com, when available, there are guided tours, which I think would be great, and I absolutely want to go. There are foreign language tours offered during the summer months, and you can easily explore the museum on your own. There's a little booklet that you can get with your ticket and, you know, Mm self-guide. This museum is actually ranked in the top 250 things to do in Paris. No way. Yeah. And that's out of, I think it's over 2,600 things that are listed Mm. on TripAdvisor. So that's really, that's not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, And going through some of the reviews on TripAdvisor, the most negative reviews complain about the smell, which I'm sorry, if you're going to a sewer museum (laughs) in a sewer, you cannot give it one stop. Are because you think it smells bad. This beach is too sandy. This water's too wet. It actually reminded me of the review that we found for a hotel that we were going to stay in in Ecuador. And some ugly American was complaining because <laughs> no one there spoke English. Yeah. Well. <laughs> it's like they they don't speak English. That's yeah. not their. What are you doing, sir? <laughs> So you're, you're hell-bent on going to this place. I absolutely want to go to this place. I wonder what kind of 
items they sell in their gift shop. They do have a gift shop, like, and they advise that if you want to enjoy the entire museum, including the gift shop, that you'll need to spend about one to two hours there. Uh, what kind of stuff, though? Like poop on a rope, maybe a little turd keychain. Uh, one of the things that I did see they have there are little stuffed rats. Okay, that's kind of cool. What about a scratch-and-sniff calendar? I think that would be a hit. My grandpa visited the sewer museum and all I got was this shitty shirt. <laughs> but as far as I could tell, there's no cafeteria. Oh, well, that's probably for the best. Yes, please. Do, sewer museum. Do they have restrooms or do you just squat down wherever you are? Ew. Well, it's a sewer. But it's a Parisian sewer. They're not uncivilized. <laughs> that's true. That is true. And now, that thing in the middle. Vlado Tanesky was a real-life Dexter. He was a serial killer who also worked as a crime reporter. He reported on his own crimes and was only caught after he wrote articles on murders that had not yet been publicly known. Did you ever get to see Eva Mendez working at Hot Dog on a Stick in Glendale, California? Well, let me tell you, neither did I. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. 
And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura frames, and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Want to listen to the Box of Oddities ad-free? Of course you do. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We really should have shared this before now. Yes, we should have. But um, I'm glad that we're, we're finally getting to it. Amber sent us a message on Facebook. It says, hi, Governor John Morris is my great, not sure how many greats, grandpa. He was, he was the guy that I did the episode on who was a founding father. One of the strangest. Yeah, he used to like to bang it out in the hallway. <laughs> I did an ancestry tree and he popped up on there. It's my only cool family fact. Oh, that's so cool. I would like to share a couple of strange things. 1111 is a number I use to make a daily wish on. Yay! Yeah, that's our favorite. That shows up in our life constantly. Constantly. Also, 22 is a number that shows up in my life a lot. Almost every number fact that you guys use is a 22. On episode 22, The Mandela Effect, I had my first box of oddities happening. I was scrolling through Facebook and there was an ad saying 10 things you don't know about The Mandela Effect. Right as Jethro says, here are some things you didn't know about The Mandela Effect. (laughs) That's crazy. Anyway, keep flying that freak flag. Signed, longtime listener, Amber. Thanks, Amber Morris. That's wonderful. It's weird that we got that uh, email uh, about uh, interesting ancestor facts because it ties nicely into my story. Oh? It was a beautiful crystal clear morning back in 1986 when Brian Spensley looked directly into the eyes of his great-great-uncle. His great-great-uncle, at that point, had been dead for over 140 years. Oh, that sounds creepy. Spenceley's uh, uncle was John Hartnell. He was a member of the Franklin Expedition. Oh. That was to discover the Northwest Passage back in uh, 1845. Hartnell was buried along with John Torrington and William Brain on Beachy Island. Beachy Island is located in the Northwest Canadian Territories, extremely remote 
extremely cold. So was his great great uncle frozen? Yes. He perished. They, you know, the whole expedition mm. perished. And several of them early on were buried in the permafrost. It's been known for a long time where these graves are. But what happens to your eyeballs when you freeze? We'll get to that. Oh. Back in May of 1845, John Franklin, who was a British naval officer, and his crew set sail on the ill-fated expedition to discover the Northwest Passage. It ended up being the deadliest polar expedition in history. Mm. 129 men were on board two different ships, the uh, HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror. None of them returned home. Because they froze in the ice and... That's how National Treasure starts? Well, it's, it's a very similar story to National Treasure. <laughs> In April uh, 1848, the members of the Franklin Expedition were essentially, they had given up all hope of discovering the Northwest Passage. Both of the ships had been frozen in the ice for nearly two years. Wow. And during that time, almost two dozen men, including Franklin himself, died. So at this point, the surviving crew members realized that uh, their only hope was to rescue themselves. So the 105 remaining men collected uh, things that they felt that they needed, foodstuffs and clothing, <laughs> and abandoned ship. I'm sorry. I just can't help but think about when we lost power this winter and we had to hook up the generator, which could only run a few things. And we were like, we have to plug in only the essential things. And you plugged in our 12-foot Christmas tree. It was essential. <laughs> like, what would you pack? And you'd be like, I need this to live. Well, it's interesting that you, uh, you mentioned that because one of the things they took was extremely weird. And I'll get to that. But this expedition ended in disaster. As I mentioned, every one of them died. And there's evidence to suggest that many of them resorted to cannibalism mm -hmm. during this deadly trek. Um, there are very few written records and there were no survivors. So the fate of the expedition became one of the biggest mysteries in the history of Arctic exploration. Uh, but over the past 160 and 170 years or so, new evidence is beginning to emerge. Different artifacts have been found. Bones have been found. In 2014, the HMS Erebus was located. Wow. And in 2016, the terror was located. It had been crushed by the ice and mm. sunk in a harbor off King William's Island. The bone fragments that were found showed to have a higher than normal lead content. Ah, yes. Researchers wanted to know why and if this lead had accelerated their, their death. The thought was that the lead um, had been used as solder to seal the cans of, of food. And the at the time, food. yeah, at the time, canned food was cutting edge technology. Right. But compounding that, the containers were lined with a lead foil. Lead was also used in food coloring, tobacco products, pewter tableware, and they even had lead wicked candles. So just about every way that they could introduce it yep. to their body, they were introducing it to their body. Yes. The thought was that the lead poisoning compounded by the effects of scurvy could have been a, like a lethal cocktail for the Franklin crew. Uh, testing the bones in the skeletal remains couldn't completely be trusted because the lead content in the bones, the bones had been exposed to the surface, and the lead content could have been a result of the lifetime exposure of the bones to the elements. And Oh, they would have been contaminated by right. their so, surroundings. So the theory could only be tested by a forensic examination of the preserved soft tissues of the victims. Now, I mentioned earlier that they... Uh, 105 of the men loaded up some 
rescue boats with supplies mm -hmm. and kind of dredged them across the, uh, the ice uh, looking for help. One of the weird things they took was a piano. <laughs> they took their piano. And this, this has led researchers to think that uh, the lead poisoning was really not working out for them too well. It was affecting their mental capacity, which would have made it nearly impossible um, to, to get out of there alive, even if they didn't have scurvy and were uh, suffering from the physical effects of lead poisoning. Mentally, they weren't capable of maybe, dealing with it. Maybe they just thought that having a piano with them would keep their spirits up. <laughs> maybe. Ensign, a little piano music while we eat the first mate. A little dinnertime piano music while you're eating the crew is always good for the digestion. So this is why they decided to open the graves of these three buried crewmen on Beachy Island. Now, the location of the graves have been known since the 1850s, okay. when the original search party found them. In fact, they had uh, exhumed them and then put them back. So they're getting ready to do this. It was a coincidence that the University of Alberta archaeologist Owen Beatty ran into Brian Spensley at uh, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Spensley at the time was a physics professor. He was also aware that he had an ancestor that was buried in the permafrost uh, that had been part of the doomed Franklin expedition. So Beatty thought it'd be a good idea to bring him along for a couple of reasons. Number one, it'd be cool to have, you know, a descendant there. Mm. Um, also, he was an academic. And at this point, the major exposure this ex expedition was getting was in the National Enquirer. So it was being really sensationalized. And he wanted to give it a little bit more credibility. So off they went. Now, the victims had been buried right after death in the frozen ground. And chipping through the permafrost proved no easy task. Uh, they used pickaxes and got down as far as they could when they started to, you know, see the, the remains of the coffin. And then they had to use gallons and gallons of hot water to pour over the coffins to thaw them out. And you can imagine how much time that must have taken, mm. you know, boiling water in the Arctic. I've done that many times on our front steps uh, because the ice will build up on the steps and the dogs can't make their way down. So I'll just tea kettle after tea kettle <laughs> of boiling water. <laughs> oh, Maine. So after many hours of hard work, they came face to face with these men who had died more than 140 years earlier. They were perfectly preserved. Having been frozen in the permafrost, almost no decay had taken place. Their clothing was perfectly preserved. They literally looked like they could have died just a, a few days prior. Wow. Spensley's great-great-uncle, John Hartnell's coffin, was covered in a blue cloth. Hartnell was 25 years old when he Aww. perished. He was a petty officer aboard the Erebus, and he died in the winter of 1846. Franklin's crew, they did not have brass hardware for handles for the coffin, so they made fake ones out of tape. They just taped what looked like handles to the side Aww. of the coffin. It appeared as though he was he was beloved. Uh, they had dressed him in a clean shirt. They had made a pillow out of uh, wood shavings for him. John's coffin had been broken, and some of the cloth had been cut away by the search party in in the 1850s. It was thought that that maybe that was a was taken as a a souvenir. Gross. The coffins of both William Brain and John Torrington had brass nameplates, but Hartnell's casket's brass nameplate was missing, and that was suspected to have been taken by the 1850 search party as well. 
<clears throat> John Hartnell's hands were perfectly preserved in the permafrost. The initials TH were embroidered on his shirt, and that led researchers to believe that uh, he had been dressed in the shirt of his younger brother Thomas to be buried. Spenceley stood there with his camera the moment he came face to face with his maternal great-great-uncle. He recognized, he said, the long nose characteristics of his grandmother and other relatives. Aww. Hartnell's hair was perfectly preserved, and as was his beard, and it looked as though they were, they were black, but further investigation revealed that they were red, and Spenceley said this made him think of his family connection. Quote, both my brother and sister had red hair. So again, John's body was perfectly preserved, but there were scars from an, an autopsy that was likely conducted by the ship's doctor. As Spenceley took photos, he looked at the face of his lost uncle and realized, quote, that nobody there had previously been in my situation of literally looking in the eyes of a relative of a great-great-uncle who had been dead for 140 years. Mm. There was not so much emotion until we came to reburying him. And then it was an overwhelming sadness, as if he had just died and knowing I would never see him again. It was determined after the examination that Hartnell likely died from a combination of tuberculosis from living in cramped uh, quarters mm. on the boat and lead poisoning from the tin cans. Beatty concluded that the slow assault on the crew's brains and bodies from lead poisoning likely played a major role in the expedition's failure. Right. But we are still learning things about the Franklin expedition. Again, that was back in the 80s. More recently, in 2013, Canadian researchers from the University of Waterloo, Lakehead University, and Trent University excavated a collection of bones. And they began to extract DNA and encouraged known descendants of the sailors to submit DNA samples to them in order to identify the, the remains. And they recently got their first match. One of the skulls that was found on the surface is known to belong to a man named John Gregory, who was an engineer on the Erebus. He was in his mid-40s when he took his last voyage. His direct paternal descendant, Jonathan Gregory, lives in Port Elizabeth in South Africa. Wow. Now, he had heard for years that uh, he had a family member that was on the Franklin expedition, but he didn't know for sure. So he just sent a sample after he heard about it from a relative who lived in British Columbia. He wasn't exactly sure if he was related to anyone or if it was just family lore. Mm. He said, quote, Having John Gregory's remains being the first to be identified by genetic analysis is an incredible day for our family, as well as all of those interested in the ill-fated Franklin expedition. The whole Gregory family is extremely grateful to the entire research team for their dedication and hard work, which is so crucial to unlocking pieces of history that have been frozen in time for so long. Now, the family knows not only that Gregory was among the 105 men who set off in search of a rescue. But they know basically where he died, on the shores of Erebus Bay, along the southwest coast of King William Island, almost 50 miles south of where the ships were abandoned. Wow. They had made it 50 miles. Well, he made it 50 miles. The research team is still hoping to find matches for DNA samples taken from 26 other victims' remains. Even though it's been more than 175 years now since the doomed expedition, we're still finding more pieces of the puzzle in the story of really what happened 
is beginning to take shape. Now, I got all my information from Mental Floss, Smithsonian Magazine, the BBC, Wikipedia, and Maclean's, and it is just to me fascinating that all of these years have passed, and this has been such a big mystery, that now modern science is being able to uncover some of these facts, and we're putting the pieces together. Right. It's incredible what DNA is is doing to the way that we research so many things. I mean, from murders and piano boats. <laughs> it's, it is remarkable. Super interesting. And you did a great job. Way to hang tough. Ooh, ah, well, my throat's really about to, I think, explode. <laughs> I think I might have tuberculosis and lead poisoning. <clears throat> Don't forget, you guys, this week, tickets will go on sale for uh, the next live looped show where you get to choose our tattoo and watch us get it while we tell you stories. We'll put all the links up on social media as, as soon well. as we have yep, them, as soon as we have all the information <laughs> and looking forward to doing um, a live show in New York City right around Halloween time. That'll be fun. Details on that coming soon as well. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.